Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner, and you're listening to The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and broadcast on Delmarva Public Radio, WSDL 90.7 FM. Soundbites is our weekly show here on The Mark Steiner Show about food, agriculture, and our environment. We're going to spend time today listening to young farmers talk about the reasons why they've chosen to dedicate their lives to farming, despite the difficulties they may face when trying to get started. We're about to have a conversation with Kim Eckert, who is a Seattle-based writer, associate editor of Yes! Magazine, which who we've done much work with over the years. She wrote an article in this winter 2016 issue of Yes! called If There Are No Farmers Who Will Grow the Food uh, and um, for How to Create a, a Culture of Good Health. So, Kim, welcome. Good to have you with us. Thanks for having me. So it's, it's a pretty interesting piece. I mean, we've heard this on our show before from farmers and other people, but um, uh, I mean, I guess this was not a revelation to you, but talk a bit about why you approached the subject. Well, one of the things that was so striking to us is if you look at the Census of Agriculture from the USDA, which, by the way, is a wealth of data and stories to be gleaned. Um, you can see that the average age of the farmer in America is 58, and more than half of farmers are actually 55 and older. Um, a third of them are 65 and older. And when you look at the other end of the spectrum, 6% are 35 and younger. So right there, I think, is a, is a stark um, portrait of an, of an industry that's, that's aging. And if we want to you know, have a sustainable agriculture system, we're going to need to find newer and younger farmers to replace this older generation. So I, I'm, I'm curious about a bunch of things after I read the article. I mean, one is, is um, I mean, how do, what are you hearing about why we got this way? I mean, I hear from a lot of farmers. You know, I meet a lot of farmers, especially in industrial farming, in industrial farming, who say their kids are taking over their farms. So what do you think the dynamic is here? Well, part of it is that um, some some families aren't able to hand it down, whether that's that they don't have a younger generation to hand it down to or or younger people don't want to stay in the business. So that's part of it. Um, another, Some advocates believe that um, the industrialization of agriculture is, is a part of it as well. Um, and as younger people might think about getting into farming, um, they look at any number of barriers um, which become cost prohibitive. And it, it's more of a challenge, I think, than some people might imagine it to be. I think that uh, with all of the emphasis on, on local food and slow food, it's easy to picture life in an idyllic rural situation. But the reality of becoming a farmer is, is much more challenging. And just the sheer um, expense of, of starting a farm business is, is overwhelming. And what we found as we were looking at this story is there's kind of three big areas, three big obstacles to young people getting in the business if it's not just handed to them. Um, and that's finding the money to finance it. Uh, so, many, so many younger people, and younger again by, you know, in their 30s and younger, um, have student loans, um, substantial student loans that can make um, getting an additional loan, uh, going into debt for farm equipment or land, difficult. Um, the land itself, getting enough land um, is is a is a challenge, and also just uh, developing the skills you need. So again, if you are not part of a farming family um, where you have that kind of built-in training, if you will, and there's there's a natural sort of legacy that's being handed down to you, um, just starting out um, is there's just uh, any number of hurdles there. So, in uh, thinking about this, I, there's a lot I was going through as I was thinking about this, and I. I they take this in two different texts. Um, one is when you mentioned the article, but let me go somewhere else first, um, which has to do – one can read the piece you wrote and other pieces like this and come to the conclusion this actually benefits in some ways industrial farming uh, in the sense that um, more land occupied by fewer farmers, growing more food, mechanically engineered and engineered in other ways um, – 
is 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 why maybe some are not as worried about it. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, that 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 seems to be one response to this. Right. Um, but I think, and this is partly based on what I learned as I did my own reporting. Um, there are enough efforts out there um, to try to kind of take a stab at this. And so we did find some encouragement in any number of organizations and advocacy groups, agencies that are looking for ways to, you know, break down the barrier, if you will, Um, whether that's advocating for uh, legislation, whether it's um, forming partnerships to either, you know, hand down a farm to a a new farmer um, or a land trust or many, many farm incubator programs um, that, that help new farmers develop skills and take their product to market. I, I think um, if this is an answer to your question, it seems that there are, there are little solutions that are, that are coming up out there. And that, that um, even though the numbers are still small right now, there are signs that um, ch- change could be coming. And uh, there's enough interest in pockets around the country to, to potentially make an inroad. I mean, there, I mean, you talk about you talk about examples in Hawaii and and other states where young farmers are are coming together. There's things here in Maryland where we broadcast from, which is a CASA, which is an organization that trains every year young people or people who want to become farmers, and they they are mentored by other farmers, and then they move into farming. And so there's there are, there are organizations like this across the country that are attempting to in different ways to answer. Uh, this question, but it, I, as I, as you said earlier, I mean there are these barriers, and they're very serious barriers, which is just the, the cost of going into it, uh, of buying the land, buying the equipment, buying the seeds, supporting yourself while you're trying to become a farmer, finding the land, which I'm hearing from a lot of young farmers is difficult to do, and this and 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 like Casa's doing in Maryland, which is training people to become farmers because people don't have those and skills innately. And as you said earlier, you know, people who come from generations of family farming, they have them because they grew up in it. But if you don't grow up in it, you don't have the skills. Right. Um, one of the, uh, well, there, there were many, but but one of the, the promising programs that I learned about, and it's it's not um, the only one kind, but it's affiliated with um, a university ag extension, Iowa State's University Beginning Farmer Center, uh, pairs up farmers who are, you know, looking ahead to retirement with a, a new farmer who is hoping to get into the business. And what, what I found interesting about this was in talking to the Beginning Farmer Center, um, they are trying to find any number of, of farmers who are, are nearing the end of their career. But uh, in many cases, some are hanging on to the farm even longer than, than they might normally um, and so they are really actively seeking uh, veteran farmers and young young people, and again, young being relative, um, <laughs> to, to be able to work with them to transition the business. And um, so, so you find people that don't, they have no relation to each other, but because they've begun this process of transferring the business through um, the university's program, you know, that's a way that a new farmer can start to uh, work, work a piece of land. Um, maybe they lease it for a while, um, but, it's, but it's a way in, in, in a way that if they were to just try to go buy acreage um, would obviously be more difficult. So that was, that was one program. And like I said, it's not um, the only one of its kind, but, but yeah, there are a few. And, um, so, so that, I think, shows promise in, in efforts to pair up old and new, if you will. And this idea of co-farming, mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's, a, it's an interesting notion, I mean, that, um, of how to kind of build this almost cooperative model to create the ability to farm, which I've I found, I mean, it's, I think that's, you know, that, that, that particular thing. And, that's, and, it's, and that, that example that you wrote about is in your hometown, right? Is that in, Yes. Yes, so it's uh, called the FarmWorks Program, which is an affiliate with Seattle Tilth, and they have um, uh, a number of acres southeast of Seattle, which is uh, one of our more rural areas here in Puget Sound. 
And they lease different parcels, different size parcels, small, but different size parcels to um, new farmers. And, you know, so some farmers might uh, grow crops on a quarter acre. Someone else might um, have a, a bit bigger parcel. They uh, participate in a farmer's council. So they kind of have these um, decision-making meetings. They, um, they can get subsidies for the equipment. Maybe it's a hoop house or uh, some of the tools or the seeds. But over time, as they participate in the project over time, those subsidies start to decrease. So the idea is to you know, give them a supportive community, um, have them around other farmers, have the land there, and have all of the, the resources nearby, but over time start to help them become more independent. This model also helps the farmers take their product to market. Seattle Tilt has a, has a food hub where the products that their farmers grow might be sent out to, to CSAs or farmers markets or restaurants. So these farmers that participate in farm works can uh, send their products to the food hub and start selling that way. Um, and one of the things that I found interesting about this too was that um, FarmWorks isn't actively you know, trying to kick anyone off the property after a certain length of time. They're trying to encourage people to stick with it, um, even if it means trying to help them become more independent. Um, but it's not a, a hard and fast, okay, your, your time is up, mm -hmm. uh, good luck to you. Um, so so and as it stands right now, they're looking for more property because more and more people are interested. And I, when you when you talk to these young farmers, people who are trying to get into this, because as you said, I mean, the stats you, you gave in here are really, I mean, it, it's, it, it's as yes does, which I think is very important, is kind of very positive and kind of showing a, a way forward. But you, you also showed in this piece um, with only 6% of the farmers uh, being uh, younger than 35, 62%, 55 and older. Mm -hmm. And the cost, I mean, that was one of the big pieces in this piece too, especially that the graphic uh, about how, how much it costs to get started. Average land, average value of land and buildings, $1,075,491. I mean, that's a huge amount for somebody to even right. contemplate. Right. Um, that That's why... Um, one of the programs that, that we alluded to a little bit ago, a program called Go Farm Hawaii, uh, that's why there are some programs that really phase in um, the participation and commitment level of new farmers um, because of the prospect of people either um, just not being able to manage the cost in, in, in any way um, or finding that, you know what, this is a huge investment, not just financial, but, but personal. And um, it, it, it's a commitment that, like I may have said before, um, it's, it's not just the idyllic rural life and coming to the farmer's market once a week. You know? um, right. And so, right. so Go Farm Hawaii has this phased-in approach where you, you start, you learn a little bit more about it, there's a, there's a weekend seminar, and then there are classes. And so over time, your participation um, increases, unless of course you're you're not interested anymore. But but that way, by the time you've finished the program, um, you're probably one of the committed ones. Um, another program I talked to out of Lansing, Michigan. Um, it, it's a it's kind of similar to FarmWorks in Seattle, but you know not everyone decided to move on to become a farmer, and. Um, after going through the program and and you know farming their their parcel, you know there was there were four people that kind of went off on their own to make a go of it, and one of them decided that's not going to be for me. And so that too, not just the cost, but you know leaving once you leave the incubator and decide to go out on your own, that's a pretty big step too. And and people may find that it's 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 just too much. I wonder just when you, as you look at this and, and yes, it's covered a lot around issues of farming um, and alternatives that people are doing around the country uh, and the world. Um, how do you see this in, in terms of the overall 
kind of movement and battle around agriculture in America between industrial farming and the new farmers trying to come up. And, you know, we, we talk about farmers' markets, but really for that to really grab hold, it's got to go beyond farmers' markets and develop hubs where they can actually sell to supermarkets and more where people actually buy their food. Most people buy their food, I should say. So how, how does all this, from what you're reading, fit into all that? Well, I, I think that um, encouraging a new generation of farmers is about sustaining a food system. And one of the things that, that YES is certainly interested in is the notion of more localized economies and sustainability. And, you know, figuring out how to grow our food, um, often organically, um, is, you know, is about ensuring that sustainable future and, and minimizing human and, and industrial impact on the land. And if we, as a society, can, can grow the population of farmers and enable them to you know, pursue these sustainable practices, help them reach these local and regional markets, then, then we could have that new generation carrying forward um, with that sort of local and regional food system. One of the things that w- we found in the um, Census of Agriculture, too, was, you know, newer farmers um, often pursue organic agriculture. They are smaller farms, mm-hmm. um, often organic farms. Um, one, in fact, one story that the Washington Post ran just a couple of weeks ago was about the growth in, in women-operated women operated farms. Yeah. Um, so there are these um, little promising um, trends out there, whether it's just a younger generation or, or women starting to um, grow the business. Um, I, I don't know if you saw the story, but it said that you know 30 percent, whether it's a primary or secondary operator of farms in this country, um, involve women, um, which is a you know interesting statistic. Um, so I think that you know from a yes perspective and from a kind of a future sustainability perspective, um, growing this new generation, whoever that new generation is, yeah, can can ensure that that sustainable future we're looking for. And I found the women piece. I, I did read the article in the Washington Post. Um, I, it was really a, a, a fascinating piece. The piece, women expand their home on the range. Is that the same one you read? Mm-hmm. Yes. Right, yes. right, right. And and it was saying that, 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 that the number of women-operated farms increased from 5 to 14% right. between 1978 and 2007. And then when you count principal operators and secondary operators, women account for 30% of all farmers or around a million women. Running this stuff—that's that's a that's a huge number, right? right. And the um, and the number of women we people we interview in this program, who are women who are running farms in Maryland. I mean, there's just a lot of them, right? One of the um, one other program that's out there, and and I did find this in talking with incubators. There are efforts to encourage um, not just women but also immigrants and refugees to farm. Yeah, and so you'll find that many of these. Um, new farmer programs really um, reach out to those communities, and so so that's a, a trend as well. So, I, as, so after re- after doing this research, interviewing these folks, what is, where does it take you? What does it take Kim? I mean, where does it take you in terms of what your thoughts are about where the future might be headed? Um, you know, I mean, they're, they're both the difficulties and the positive outlook. I mean, so what, what does it all say to you? Well, I actually was was very encouraged by all of the programs that are out there. I mean, obviously, when anytime you do a story, you, you put in a few, but there are so many more out there. Um, and, and so that was encouraging to me. And just hearing about these various, they might be small, they might be large, uh, these various programs that are out there, whether it's to um, help a farmer find and, and purchase or rent land or learn how to farm, Meeting these farmers out on the ground, like I did here in Seattle, or talking with them, or talking with programs, um, it, it it was encouraging to me because it shows that that there is a lot of effort. Um, we we may see these statistics, and the statistics certainly look dire, but behind those statistics really is a a growing movement to um, to try to kind of carve out a, a sustainable future. I mean, I really enjoyed the piece. I think there's really a discussion that it would be great to kind of really expand 
uh, for us and and maybe with you all to kind of look at where the future of farming is going with young farmers. Um, and the rest of this program is going to be listening to many of the archive editions we've had talking to young farmers over the years here on this Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites because I think it's a very, very critical subject. So uh, I want to thank you for, 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 for pushing us on this and putting this article out here. Um, Kim, Ar- Kim Eckhart's article uh, is here uh, in Yes Magazine, this latest winter issue uh, of Yes Magazine. It's part of the How to Create a Culture of Good Health. Uh, and the article is, if there are no new farmers, who will grow the food? And we will link to this uh, on, at steinershow.org as well. And Kim, good to talk to you, and thank you so much for the piece you wrote. Oh, thanks for having me. We have to take a break, but when we return, we'll hear from some of our young farmers. Welcome back. You're listening to Sound Bites right here on the Mark Steiner Show on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA, 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and broadcast on Delmarva Public Radio, WSDL 90.7 FM. We just learned that by 2030, a quarter of the people currently farming in America are going to retire. And that on its own is not a problem. But there are not enough young people entering the profession to make up for the farmers retiring. There's only one farmer under 35 for every six farmers over 65. We hear now from some of our own young farmers we sat down with last spring. Walker Marsh is founder and owner of the Flower Factory. Isabel Antrizian, project manager for White Lock Community Farm. Sasha Jones, food justice consultant for Park Heights Community Health Alliance and manager of the Afia Community Teaching Garden in Park Heights. And Charlotte Keniston. Kern Open Society Institute fellow working in partnership with Paul's Place on community-led interventions addressing food accessibility in Picktown right here in Baltimore. So just, you know, where to take this conversation, I was thinking a lot about this as we were talking about having you all on, and I think it's important kind of maybe to kind of explore what brings people to farming, especially what brings people to farming within city limits and why that is. Sasha... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. This is a long, but I'll make it a short story. Because you went to Morgan, right? No, I went to Spelman. You went to Spelman. Okay, right, right. I knew it was an HBCU. I forgot which one it was. Right, right, right. Number one HBCU, big ups to Spelman. Look out. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No shade (laughs) at all. But anyway, um, my food story, how I came to urban agriculture is it has many facets. One of them is my personal family history. Um, I come from a family of farmers. I didn't know that until I got, you know, I came older and I started doing it myself. But uh, my family lives currently in Fitzgerald, Georgia, where they have a like a hundred acre farm and they make Dang. they grow peanuts and lima beans and all wow. these things Dang. that you grow in Georgia. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, all the things I would love to grow here, but. Um, in school that you mentioned it, I uh, studied international studies and my concentration was sustainable development. And so I did my research on sustainable agriculture as a means to development. And um, my case studies were on urban farms in Atlanta. And so when it came time for me to choose a career and do what I wanted to do, I thought about the Foreign Service and I said, oh, you know, I can go to Lesotho and, um, you know, <laughs> shape cool. there. Yeah, that would be great. I might still do that. Um, you know, and shape their agricultural systems and bring people in, but then I could go back home to Baltimore where, you know, my family was dying of all types of cancers and having food-related diseases. Like, my family is the quintessential. If you eat poorly, if you do bad things, you are going to have some health issues. And so for me, it's kind of a full-circle story um, of loving food from a very young age, having it in my, my DNA, so to speak, my cellular memory, and then also studying it from a development perspective and using it as a, um, as a means to development in er- urban areas. And that's what we're doing in Park Heights, really bringing people in to lift them up through food and agriculture. That's an exciting story, I think, what you all are doing there. And Isabel? Yeah, um, my background is a little less academic and more uh, rooted in community organization. And um, I guess I started working with an after-school program in Minneapolis that was uh, 
focused on nutritional recipes and having kids farm in their neighborhoods and then also, um, you know, working together, developing recipes together, cooking together, eating together, um, and building kind of conversational and social skills. Um, so that, that organization in Minneapolis is just, like, so successful, like, such a successful model. Uh, and then when I moved back to Baltimore, I heard about the opening at Whitelock Community Farm um, for an assistant farm manager position. And, of course, I was interested in that because I knew that it was um, gardening-based, but also, like, directly within a community, with, like, in the middle, in the heart of a neighborhood. Um, and so I've been working with my coworker there to kind of put some more educational pieces into place. Um, we've been partnering with the elementary school and different community organizations in the neighborhood um, to put together some more community-based learning uh, opportunities, I guess. Charlotte. Yeah, my story, it's interesting. My story has a lot of touch points with both of these ladies. But <laughs> I, So I'm originally from New Hampshire and also found out later on in life that I come from a family of farmers, but that kind of history and information was lost in a couple of generations of people who thought a nine-to-five was better than working their land or that was more prestigious or, you know, whatever leads people away from the farm. Um, and I, after college, I also studied international development, um, mm. and I joined the Peace Corps and went to Guatemala and lived in a really rural agricultural community that was one of the poorest towns in the country of Guatemala, which is one of the poorest countries in the world. Um, but the people that I lived among had really abundant access to great food because they grew it in their backyards. Um, and then I moved back to Baltimore City to go to graduate school, moved to a neighborhood called Pigtown, and discovered that there was nowhere in my neighborhood where I could walk and get something healthy to eat. Um, and so started thinking about the implications of, of what it meant to not have food in your neighborhood and what that meant in terms of our health and our social well-being. And, and as I was thinking about those things, met some other neighbors who were interested in kind of talking and thinking and addressing that issue, and we formed a food justice group called Pigtown Food for Thought, and we've been working for almost four years in the Pigtown neighborhood to address food and access. You have a farm there? We, we have a small community garden, and we're starting a second community garden. We kind of work on this model of really small pocket spaces that neighbors can really love and work together. Um, so we don't grow on a production scale. We have no plans to be selling our produce. We grow for each other. That's an important point. We'll get to that as well. Walker Marsh. Yeah, yeah. So um, it's cool to hear everybody's story because I, I didn't even know you guys' story like that. That's really <laughs> cool. Um, I guess for me, I, I come from like a really more like a service-oriented background. Um, I didn't really go to school for any of this. I didn't even know that they did like degrees on like, you know, urban agriculture and agriculture, stuff like that. Um, I started, you know, I went to college at Virginia State University and uh I ended up failing out of college. I was doing engineering, and I was really into, like, you know, car design and stuff like that. And once I failed out of college, um, I was kind of, like, figuring out where I wanted to go with myself. And it took me a a while to actually find a job. And I was always interested in, like, energy conservation. So I started working at this uh, nonprofit called Civic Works, and uh, I was doing work at uh, Project Lightbulb. And, uh, you know, it was was focused on home weatherizations and saving energy and, you know, teaching people about conserving energy. And I was really into that. And, you know, I enjoyed it, but it wasn't, like, what I was really passionate about. So um, I went and did some other work. And then I heard about, you know, Real Food Farm because working with Civic Works, Real Food Farm is a program underneath of Civic Works' uh, bigger organization. And uh, they had an opening. And I was like, you know, I never thought about farming before. And, you know, now that I think about it now, I I do have some family that, you know, farms. But there was no real connection between me and that family. Like, I, I didn't really have experience growing up farming and hearing stories about farming. I, I went down the eastern shore and seen farms. and was like, <laughs> oh, that's cool. You know, that looks <laughs> nice and stuff. But, you know, I, I never thought about going out there and farming. But then I saw they had this job opening. So I started working at Roku Farm and fell in love with it and started to learn about uh, food access issues and food inequalities. And I was just like, man, these are, like, real issues that are, like, right around the corner from where I'm at. And it's just like, you know, I, it's just ridiculous. Because, you know, I mean, growing up in Baltimore, you, you see the stuff and you see that there's a lot of uh, food inequalities and, you know, the access to good food is just, like, it's, like, ridiculous because there's no access to good food, you know, honestly. And, uh, you know, it's it's just difficult. So that's how I got into it, just, yeah, falling. So I'm, what do your families think about y'all being farmers? 
<laughs> they, they tease you in a loving way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like you know, every you know, here come Miss Sealy, or you know, and that's 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 one of the things that I think a lot of young people, particularly people of color, are averse to going into agriculture and just outdoor um, employment opportunities in general because of that connection with our slave history and yeah. people just being completely averse to going back to something that they think you know is demeaning or menial you know or not important and so you know they make those types of jokes but at the same time when you come around with fresh collard greens they want to take them (laughs) bring some like cucumbers to the barbecue they'd be like oh okay let's go (laughs) (laughs) that is interesting it's an interesting point to to explore about that what you just said yeah yeah it's a very interesting point your parents think you what do they think about my parents love it, uh, or at least love the idea of it, but I definitely do get the occasional email of the articles that come out that are like, hmm, from my mom about, um, you know, New York Times articles about you can't make it as a farmer these days, or like small-scale farming is absolutely going to fail. So they're definitely concerned, but interested, and I think deep down love it. Well, this is why we paid your college tuition. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, and I think my parents love it as well. My mom has gotten herself on the U.S. Department of Agriculture email list and is constantly forwarding me things that she finds from that. They really have no relation with what I'm doing at all. But it, it shows to me that she's interested in what I'm doing and trying to find points to connect with me on it. So, I'm, you know, I, I'm uh, – as, as the things you just said here, what your mother just said, she sent to you, Isabel. Um, it makes you think, what do you think about your, your future and what the viability of your life is as a farmer in a city, you know, and and you know, and, and where that takes you because you're all, you know, I have no idea how you all you're in your twenties, right? Yeah, Most of yeah. Right? Yeah. Right? Right. <laughs> so, um, and and so, so, I'm I'm curious where you think this goes, both in terms of your work that you're doing now, uh, what you read and think about in terms of the difficulties of making it as a farmer, no matter where you're farming in this world, especially on a small scale. Mm-hmm. I mean, so where do you think this goes? Where do you think this urban world of farming goes beyond all the hype of let's turn some of the these these empty plots of land into places well, of food? Where I hope it goes is us increasing, you know, our collectiveness and cooperation in our work, you know. Um, like I, we, White Lock, we're right down the street from one another, but we don't partner or anything currently, you know, and that's something that we can change. Um, right, you are literally like a seven-minute, five-minute Literally, drive. on the other side, on right. one side of the, park, the park, park is right. me, the other side is hers, you know. like right. um, So that's something small that we can change this year. But, you know, Park Heights is ripe, you know, for creating a food economy, a food shed of sorts, which I would like to see. I would like... Um, for us to take the cooperative business model and apply that to farming and have us specialize um, our crops and use that to aggregate and to get, you know, overturn the system. And that's my hmm. radical and idealist uh, no, no, view. Let me pull that. I'm going to pull that. So what does that, what does that mean, that, that, that you think it's ripe uh, for being this, this place where food can be grown and, and as a co-op. What is it, what's, what's your vision about that? Well, I mean, we have an abundance of vacant lots. We have an abundance of abandoned homes, and we have an abundance of people out of work. Um, so we have a really good, and we have a heat island because we're all on top of one another. So we, <laughs> so we have a really good opportunity to use all of those what look like disparities and transform them into something that can put all those people to work, can feed them, um, can help overturn some of those health inequities that we have um, in Park Heights and in Baltimore in general. We're not unique. Um, I think that there are several pockets around the city that. Um, that are ripe for development, and I think that it's up to us, the people who live and work there, to kind of shape, excuse me, to shape that development. And I think food is an awesome tool. One of the reasons that I got into food in the first place is because it touches every sector of the economy. You know, it affects health, it affects geography, it affects, you know, bottom line. If you look at the stock market today, like the biggest trading things are like pork bellies and chickens, you know, and people don't people don't look at it that way. We're always looking at Apple and Disney stock. But if you look at the commodity stocks, you know, those are being traded every day. So it's a it's a huge part of our economy that we are not tapped into on a day-to-day basis outside of going to our local grocery store and picking up what we want for dinner or maybe for the week and coming back home and cooking it. But what if we were the grocery store? What if I could walk around the corner and, you know, pick up my onions for the day and walk around the other corner and pick up some garlic and, you know, 
Um, and using that, using the whole neighborhood, like on our farms, I'm sure a lot of us, we use crop rotation. Like we won't grow something in the same space. What if that was for the whole community? So our mm. crop rotation plan would be on lot A at the corner of Pimlico Road and Quantico, we're growing tomatoes this year. And then crop B at the corner of, you know, so using that and bringing people into the fold. Um, and that is a goal that maybe 20 years away, maybe five years away, but that's my vision. I'm putting it out there. Somebody like take it. hold I of like it. it. <laughs> well, that's interesting. So what about the other visions at the table? Go right ahead. Yeah. <laughs> um, so picked up your thought things on a bit of a smaller scale, and I think what we're thinking about is not, I love what Sasha's saying about putting people back to work, and I think that that's crucial. What we're focusing on is providing a social space for people to interact with each other, to begin to care about their neighbors, and to learn a little bit about food cultivation. So to grow tomatoes, but on a really small scale, but mm-hmm. with your neighbors, so that you, I mean, I think one of the things that I felt when I moved to Baltimore City was loneliness. I'd never lived in a city before. I was in this place where I felt really isolated. I didn't know any of my neighbors, and then I started growing food with them, and that totally changed the way I saw my neighborhood. I became, I um, began to love my neighborhood, and I had really close friends there and started to really care about Pigtown. And I think that that's what community gu- gardens can provide for people is a social space to to bring people out of their houses and to interact with each other, to care about their neighborhoods, and to start make, making small changes. Mm-hmm. And, and and your model, Walker, in some ways is a little different because you're talking about building a business that with, with Walker Marsh as the owner of this business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm right? like really trying to promote this like green entrepreneurship. I've been calling it that. Mm-hmm. Um, but... You know, I, I agree a lot with uh, what Sasha was saying. Like, we do need to get people out here working and doing this type of work, you know, because that's, that's how you, you know, for me, I look at it more or less like for making, getting these individuals to be able to make some money that they can live the lifestyle that they are able to have, like, a healthy, you know, food and, and be able to go to Trader Joe's and buy, you know, whatever they want. So, you know, I think that um, I'm trying to promote entrepreneurship just in, in a whole and for people to go back to working with the land and uh it just like understand what it what it is because i think like we really lost that you know like people don't work with the land you know you I, when i was working at real food farm you know you have the high schoolers and middle school kids come out and they're walking in the dirt and they like they so worried about getting their shoes dirty like why are you worried about getting <laughs> your shoes dirty like that don't shoes are nothing like you can buy a new pair of shoes you know what i'm saying but I don't, it just people just need to get back to work with the land and, and understanding its value and seeing that you know there is something that could come from this like I know I, I parent I get scared all the time like I'm not going to make enough money you know doing this stuff because honestly it's not that much money in it you know it, it is difficult for farmers because it you know it's, it's it's just difficult when you're selling you know vegetables and these fruits and you know you got to sell a certain amount of a certain amount of it to be making that, you know, money back that you put into it. Because there's a lot of money that goes into farming, and it's hard to get that money back if you're not selling it and doing a lot. So, you know, it is all it really takes is, like, for that education for people to understand, like, why am I buying this, you know? So mm-hmm. it's I see, like, entrepreneurship. I also see education. I really want to promote to people why they're, why they're doing it, why we should be eating healthy. Because I'm coming from, like, more of a background that's I'm more focused on trying to get at people that don't really understand any of this stuff because that's that's where I come from I you know I wasn't knee deep in this stuff a day Mm -hmm. ago you know what I'm saying I was still just getting my feet wet and still (laughs) learning about it and I see that there are a lot of other people that are you know they don't know anything about this stuff like there's people that don't even know about the Mark Steiner show you know what I'm saying and that's that's ridiculous you know because it's an awesome show <laughs> you know, awesome, you know I, I just well, thank you but yeah, yeah but there's there's a lot of folks out there and I'm, I'm really trying to grab their attention you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying so. yeah gra- um, off of all of those things I think we're also interested in in making those vacant spaces productive again both in terms of building an economy and rebuilding social spaces. I know at White Lock, um, the vacant lots that we're working on used to be the business corridor of that neighborhood, and that was where people would be interacting all the time. And I'm sure that's where community was built, right? Like the ways to talk to one another, the ways of like, I don't know, even just like building neighborly, whatever, (laughs) building your neighborhood. Um, And so then it sat vacant for many years, and a lot of people kind of lost that. And kids growing up, they lost that. So I think having the space... Uh, both to just like say hi to people, see how they're doing, but also an educational space. We have um, 
you know, a farm club with the elementary school nearby or whether it be like workshops with people in the neighborhood, um, just space that people can come learn from each other, also share those ide- their ideas on what they'd want to learn and see if we can kind of build workshops around that. Um, what else? I don't know. I mean, all of you have, have worked, live in, worked in neighborhoods that are, whether it's White Lock, which I remember very well growing up, Mm-hmm. And I remember all the stores in the corner on White Lock, and I re- remember it kind of like Park Heights kind of falling into this kind of deserted neighborhood, stores leaving, Big Hemming, a drug-riddled neighborhood, lots of violence happening in the streets. Big Town, too, and it was like that as well. That, that you know, that, and that this is the, the idea of uh, coming into living in neighborhoods where um, transforming community is partially what you're trying to do here via getting your hands in the dirt. And mm-hmm. So how do people respond to you? How do people in your communities respond to the work you're doing, do you think? I think people love it. Um, the space that we created our first garden in, is, it's actually interesting to hear you talk about um, changing, so the neighborhood being productive and then falling into kind of a state of decay. And then um, our space that we turned into a garden used to be a sub shop, and I found that out after we'd built it. It was a trash heap when we found it, and we hauled out, I don't know, probably two tons of trash to make it a garden, and someone, as we were kind of regenerating the space, came and said, oh, this is where I used to come and buy subs when I was a kid. So I love this idea that it was a space that provided food for the neighborhood that fell into decay, that then we were providing food for the neighborhood again. But in that first growing season... It's not a cheese stick, though. No, it's not a cheese stick. <laughs> <laughs> um, in that first growing season, I was uh, harvesting some eggplants, and my neighbor, Miss Becky, walked by, and I said, hey, Miss Becky, do you, would you like an eggplant? And I handed it to her, and she took a few steps away and then turned around and said, you know, I've never seen food growing in this neighborhood. And that, to me, was an aha moment that, like, kids who grow up in Baltimore City neighborhoods maybe never know that food comes from the ground. They maybe never get to see it, and they certainly don't get to participate in it. So for us, um, our garden is a place where all of those things can happen. Um. So, uh, so I'm, I'm really, you know, I was thinking about this in terms of uh, what we talked about last hour, um, and I kept thinking about the, the Afrofuturism and the, and, the, and the futuristic look of the world, and I'd like to play with that game for a minute with you all. This <laughs> would be fun. You know, yeah. and, and play this game of, of what you think it could look like in 10 years. I mean, you guys will just all be in your 30s, uh, plenty of time and energy left to transform the world. Uh, and I'm, so I'm curious what you think it could look like. If you were painting a vision mm-hmm. of this city and what the land could produce and what it could mean for transforming uh, this community. So how do, you, how do you view that? And how do you and just kind of fantasize? But to me, fantasy is just the step before reality, you know? Yeah, I mean, you've got to right? visualize it and it will manifest and right. happen. Right. So. Actually, I was listening to the last segment uh, on my way over here. And I started writing a science fiction novel based on <laughs> based on the adventures of Grow Girl in my mind. Um, Grow Girl, we, I love that. We play with this idea of Grow Girl uh, at my in my office in Park Heights, and it's just it's a, it's a young lady who goes around spreading you know the joys and learnings of um, of growing food in urban areas and so Johnny Appleseed becomes a black woman exactly <laughs> exactly um, she's a young black woman but um in I mean Baltimore is a neighborhood city and so again the climate here is just so ripe for so much goodness which is why there's a lot of greatness happening right now um, and I think what the future looks like is for us picking up uh, Walker's mission to bring more people into the fold um, for the people who live here who have lived here to not be left out of this new wave of um, of greatness in all facets, arts, education, food, health, um, community development, safe spaces, all of these things are happening um, and they're being funded. And so just making sure that the folks who have lived here tap into that um, and so in Park Heights, to me, it looks like the, the people who are either renting or owning or who are renting, you know, that they are able to own and putting our policies toward that. Um, again, the food shed, it's, it's my baby in my mind, and I want that to happen. Um, 
going when you drive around Baltimore, you see like old theaters in the neighborhoods, right? Mm-hmm. And oh yeah, every, every growing up, every neighborhood had its own movie theater. Growing exactly. Up in every oh, neighborhood wow. had its own exactly. Right. And so you when you, when the whole idea of the mall and the strip mall and the suburbs that grew around it comes mm-hmm. in, you know, these neighborhood based things go to this one area that has everything, you know. And so we're shipping people out of the neighborhood and devaluing it. So if we could just little by little just bring resources back, and that's the move in development right now, these mixed-use, multi, you know, multi-use spaces, mixed-age, like, this is the new wave, but doing that with the interests of the people in mind, and the, you know, the Afia Community Teaching Garden, where I work, that's our, you know, that is our mantra, to grow the things that people in the neighborhood already eat, you know, we're not going to grow things that, while they may be super nutritious, or while they may be super cool and awesome, and they're pretty, you know, if the people in the neighborhood are not going to utilize them, then we don't grow it, and so if we could take that idea and put it into you know, our lens of development and particularly agricultural development in Baltimore City, you know, how much greater could we be? So not necessarily growing food that's cost prohibitive or only for our um, for our niche restaurants that are awesome and delicious, but um, growing food for the local carryout, like, you know, mm-hmm. and this is another idea. I'll give it to the universe. Um, just growing lettuce, tomatoes, and onions in a hoop house all year round and selling it to your local carryout. You know, yeah. start where people are and scale it up as their their interest grows. So before we go, people are calling in when we get to their phone calls, but Isabella and Trishan, <laughs> tell us about a bit about your kind of vision of where, well, what, do you, what do you think this could go? I love everything that you just said about your vision, um, and I hope that we are moving in that direction. Um, I also would add to that, <clears throat> excuse me, that... I have to think about all these kids that are involved in these programs that we're running right now, and I think that there's going to be, like, a fundamental shift in their understanding of food and their their preferences for food, which is amazing, right? Like, we have this uh, farm club with the local elementary school, and to watch the kids, like, have grown their own produce and then be, like, really proud of it, you know? We have this this mobile market that they were running, and one of the kids was just, like, so proud about the scallions he was growing. And I'm like, you are eight years old and so happy about scallions. Like, that's amazing, right? Like, if kids are slowly transitioning into being aware of how their food is grown and where it's coming from and, like, expecting that to be the case, then I think that's really great. Um, Also, there's a lot of people who come up to Whitelock and ask about their own backyard gardens that they're doing. So I think there are a lot of people in the neighborhoods that are doing their own farming or their own, like, small-scale gardening, and I think that there's these larger, larger uh, small-scale farms are kind of, like, going to be a hub of knowledge of of farming techniques and also, like, just any sort of... um, I don't know, like how how to be growing effectively, and people can come to that and kind of learn for their own small, smaller scale backyard gardening. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some quick thoughts there before we hit the phones. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree with Isabel. I think like if I can envision ten years down the road, I mean, I can see like for me, I, I see more like the landscape changing. Like there's a guy out in Cali. I forget what his name is. I'm mad, but. He does a program out there where they just, like, take plots and, like, grow on, like, median strips uh-huh. and stuff like that. And I could see, like, you know, people taking over that. Like, you know, where we have, like, you know, just regular stuff, you know, where you're going down the street, you see some grasses. Like, we might – I could see that being, like, you know, tomato trellises and stuff like right. that, you know. And it's just, like – you know, there's so many various spaces across the city where you can grow, and it's not an inconvenience to anybody because a lot of people are like, oh, you know, don't take our spot. You know, that's where blah, blah, blah. You know, whatever. You know, people <laughs> feel however they want to. But, um, you know, there, there are various places that you could grow from, and I could, I just see, like, the landscape changing. Like, you know. If people don't realize you can actually raise chickens in Baltimore. You, you can. Yeah. And chickens. goats. You can raise chickens, right? Yeah, yeah. And rabbits and beans. <laughs> right, right. What were you going to say? Um, I was just adding that you also can have goats, but I would um, add to what Walker said. I think I have seen the landscape in Pigtown change just in the three years that we've been there. Um, when we started our little garden, there were lots of lots that were owned by the city and up for adopting. And when we went to adopt the lot that we're now turning into a larger garden this year, we discovered that there are hardly any lots left in Pigtown because people are growing food. People have adopted little lots wow. and turned them into little pocket parks or places where they're growing food. So I think, it, yeah, we're well on that path to changing the landscape of Baltimore. That's very exciting. I think that there should be a chicken farm, goat farm. Yeah. I agree. You know? yeah. I thought that stuff should exist mm-hmm. in this in the city. Yeah. yeah. You absolutely. just can't get a rooster. That's the only issue. Well, you, yeah. can't, you can't have a rooster. We yeah. can change the law. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You definitely <laughs> can change the law. Yes. So this is exciting. I mean, I mean I'd like to – I'm looking forward to coming back to Park Heights, and I'm looking forward to uh, 
getting back again. It's been a couple of years since we've been out to see what you all are doing. Yeah, come on uh, by. I definitely want to see what's happening over, over, there, over in your area in Whitelock and not been down to Pigtown and seen your piece. Come visit us. Yeah. I've not seen your farm either. Yeah, yeah, man. I meant y'all say Pigtown. Yeah, we got to go over to Broadway East, man. You know, there's about to be some things over Broadway East popping, man. We're about to be doing some things. Well, this so, is yeah, good. It's, it's, this is, there's, there's a lot happening. I think that we push this energy the way we're doing, and people are obviously from the phone calls and emails interested in this. Um, and I think that it's great to have the four of you here in the studio. You are doing great work, and I admire the four of you. I'm glad you all came in today. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks Thank for having you, us. So Walker awesome. Marsh, founder and owner of the, of the, Flo- the, the Flower, Flower Factory. Factory. Yeah. Uh, Isabel Artesian, who, Antesian, who is project manager of the White Lock Farm, a community farm. Charlie Keniston, who is an OSI fellow working in Picktown, who adjusts food accessibility. Sasha Jones, who is a food justice consultant with Park Heights Community Health Alliance and manages their farm. Good to have you all here. Thank you so much. This has been great. Thank you. Thank you. That's all for Sound Bites today. Tell us what you thought about today's program by telling us at talk at org, And please send us your ideas for future segments related to food, agriculture, and our environment from Baltimore to the Eastern Shore and beyond. The Mark Steiner Show and Sound Bites are productions of the Center for Emerging Media, made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our producers are Stephanie Mavronis and Mark Gunnery. Our engineers, Andre Melton. Our engineer at Delmarva Public Radio is Christopher Rank. Our interns are Siano Greaves, Monifa Wilson, Calvin Perry, and Morgan Barber. Our theme music is by Wal Matthews of Clean Cuts. To podcast The Mark Steiner Show and share it with your friends, visit us on the web at steinershow.org. You can also learn more about Soundbites and listen to past episodes at soundbitesradio.org. If you're a source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. And WSDL 90.7 FM, Delmarva Public Radio. I'm Mark Steiner. Take care.